Hello, and welcome to this PE Live podcast in association with King & Spalding, official legal partner of the Petroleum Economist LNG to Power Forum Americas. I'm delighted to be joined by Wade Coriel and David Lang from King & Spalding. I will be asking them to introduce themselves in a second. First of all, I did want to just say a little bit about, about why we're here, what makes the topic of sort of US LNG and its role in delivering LNG to the world and to LNG to power projects in particular so important. And clearly we cannot ignore the very sad events that have occurred in Ukraine earlier in this year. That has fundamentally changed the LNG market. It's changed it physically, clearly with a lot more LNG going from places like the US and elsewhere into Europe, and indeed currently sitting off Europe waiting to deliver. So you clearly a fundamental shift in physical flows, but also a change in contractual arrangements. We've seen a slew of SPA agreements put in place. Most of those have been from US export projects. A couple of others, but you know, probably ninety something percent of all of the uh, SPAs that have been signed, so post-Ukraine invasion, have been with uh, U.S. projects. On the buy side, perhaps slightly counterintuitively, the portfolio players actually dominating that position, followed by Asian utilities and, and European utilities, actually probably third in the queue in terms of uh, signing up to contractual LNG which I think is testament to the fact that you know LNG contracts are complicated and they have you know, risk associated with them. And that's something I'm sure we will get into. The other thing which we obviously have to mention is the fact that the global attitude to energy has shifted. The energy trilemma, you know, that ability to supply energy that is affordable and secure, and sustainable has jumped to you know top of the agenda so a real shift there so you know plenty of things to discuss Wade, i'm going to pass to you to introduce yourself and king and spalding and then uh, we'll get the discussion started sure and thank you peter great to be here and have this conversation today king and spalding is a law firm of a little over 1200 lawyers now we've got 23 offices across the globe including in all of the major energy centers and about 250 of us who focus in particular on energy and we have i would say our two of our primary strengths which are relevant to what we'll be talking about today are in the energy project space lng in particular and also energy disputes kind of vertically through the whole industry but including disputes under LNG SPAs, in particular price reviews and price review arbitrations. My name's Wade Coriel. I'm a partner who splits time between our Houston and our Singapore offices. I have done a lot of work in the energy space and in LNG disputes in particular as an international arbitration lawyer. I'm the deputy head of our uh, global international arbitration team and in particular have advised on several and uh, litigated what we believe to be the first LNG price review dispute in Asia. I'll let David introduce himself. Uh, hi, David Lang, partner at King & Spalding in Houston. My practice is focused on developing, buying, and selling energy infrastructure assets. I have a particular focus on developing LNG projects and have worked on LNG projects from gas supply through shipping, regasification, kind of a 
wellhead to burner tip, if you will. Worked on projects around the globe, six continents, and was like Wade. I was based in Asia for many years. I was in Hong Kong for seven years, and I've worked on a lot, a lot of projects in Asia, Australia, in the Americas as well, likewise Africa and Europe. So, looking forward to chatting with you, Peter, and hope we can provide some insights. I'm sure that both of you will do exactly that, David. I'd like to kick off picking up on a point that I mentioned in the intro, which is on sustainability, and maybe ask what role can and already do LNG to power projects play on the road to net zero? Yeah, I'm happy to comment on that. I think LNG to power projects and LNG more generally are fundamental to the energy transition and achieving net zero. The most important green initiative, according to one of my clients, and I think correctly, is the conversion of coal-fired power plants to natural gas. And natural gas, when when burned in, in power plants, creates 50% less carbon dioxide than, than coal-fired power. Likewise, the production of natural gas, while releasing methane at times, is less of a methane releaser than coal production. And so converting existing coal-fired power and ensuring that future power plants are gas-fired as opposed to coal-fired is a critical step in moving forward with the energy transition. You know, I think in particular, China, Southeast Asia, and South Asia continue to develop new coal-fired power, power plants And until that is displaced, the path to net zero is a really difficult one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we've seen a lot of discussion around recently has been a sort of potential, hopefully temporary sort of setback, if you like, to that sort of gas displacing coal uh, trend due to the current price dynamics. And maybe that leads me on to a a question, which I'll maybe ask in two parts. The first part may be... David, you might want to comment on is, is how important has the LNG pricing environment been in developing LNG to power projects thus far? Well, let me talk about that and then kind of the current moment. But I was looking, I spoke about three years ago at a petroleum economist LNG to power event about the role of kind of isolated markets in the LNG to power space. And kind of the theme then was the LNG supply world was looking for new markets because you know demand was not what it had been. You know, it was not growing at at pace that we might have expected, and so we were in the mode of kind of developing new markets, and that was a role for LNG to power projects to play to really kind of fill in those new markets. Obviously, the world has changed, and even before the invasion of Ukraine, we saw supply demand balance really coming back and. LNG projects were starting to move forward again on the supply side. The invasion of Ukraine obviously completely accelerated everything. And as you've mentioned, there have been a lot of uh, long-term supply agreements signed since that occurred. Sure. But you don't think that we know know, from experience that energy markets in general and the gas and LNG market is no exception are cyclical. So you don't think that this, you know, the current very high prices that we're seeing, it's not a death knell, if you like, for future LNG to power development? Well, a couple of things. I mean, there's certainly risk of demand destruction from high pricing, but hopefully this is a temporary situation that will be alleviated as Europe builds infrastructure that it needs to fill the gap from 
Russia. But I don't think it's the death knell. And I think you know an important thing to note is while gas prices have soared and are particularly acute in Europe, coal prices are also way up right now. And the disruption of supply out of Russia, coal supply out of Russia, has also sent coal prices soaring. So you've got both of those being affected. So I think there's still opportunity for LNG to power to play a role. I don't think coal pricing is necessarily going to win over and kill these projects. Excellent. Well, that's a hopefully a, a positive trend. Clearly, you know, whatever future prices will do, and I don't think any of us are here to forecast the price, but what we are seeing and what it feels that we will see if the next few years is price volatility. So I was just wondering if I could explore a little bit about the impact that that price volatility has on financing for LNG to power projects, because clearly these are multi-million dollar projects. Um, does it make it more difficult to get these projects financed? I'll start there. And then, Wade, I think we'll talk about some ways of dealing with this. But but certainly price volatility drive you know can negatively impact financing of these projects. I think it's worth noting, though, that while there has been price volatility in the spot market, uh, long-term LNG pricing you know, has come up. Prices have come up over the past year, but not in the same way that European spot prices and Asian spot prices have spiked. And so if you were entering into long-term LNG supply contracts to underpin your power project, you're not seeing the same level of volatility in those as you see in the spot market. Sure. Are there any other factors, you know, as well as sort of price volatility that are, should we say, influencing the financing environment for these sorts of projects? Certainly. And I think a big factor there is the availability and cost of floating regasification units. But before we move on to talking about the FSRUs, I I wanted to talk a little bit about what we can do in the LNG contracting, what we can do to protect against that volatility. And I know Wade has seen a lot on the uh, price review and price dispute side of things and has some insights. I thought we could get him to comment on that. Happy to do that. Really, it comes down into kind of two buckets. Number one, what it means in terms of the existing contracts and how sort of you commercially manage those as they play out over current terms. And then, of course, for future contracts, what are the lessons that we're learning and what are the types of Solutions might not be the right word, but sort of the types of reactions as far as sort of changing the way contracting parties look at certain terms in SPAs. I think with respect to existing contracts, some of the types of clauses that become increasingly relevant in a more price volatile environment are, number one, liquidated damages clauses. So when you're talking about a party's failure to take or a party's failure to deliver, and you've got price volatility at issue, which can lead to certain commercial motivations with respect to cargoes. I think sort of the ability to know kind of what those damages are, that they would be liquidated, to have a sense of kind of the ultimate consequence of a commercial decision you might make with respect to taking or delivering as a buyer or a seller, I think it is important. And so kind of managing and looking to those clauses, I think an important aspect for the existing contracts. The reps and warranties, representations and warranties that you see in a lot of SPAs can be very relevant. And so I think those clauses are important. And then, of course, finally, and I think you mentioned this a little bit earlier, alluded to it, David, is 
in the contracts where you have price review clauses, and it tends to be the Asian contracts in particular that have kind of the price review clauses that not only invite every five or so years a party to request and to be able to enforce a review, but in many instances allow for arbitration if the parties are unable to come to an agreement on a revised price and do so under a substantive clause that combines a formula with a lot of factors that give parties the opportunity to argue pretty creatively to get the price up or down. I mean, you see things like the revised price should take into account of comparable commercial terms between the contract you're doing the review under and the bucket of comparable contracts that the clause directs you to as a comparator for the review. Lots of sort of terms like that, factors like that, that go into price reviews that can ultimately be the subject of disputes if the parties don't agree that allow for a lot of creativity. It's not just the price volatility, which obviously motivates folks to use the clause more. It's then there can be a wide range of outcomes that you're worried about in the review or in a dispute if it goes before an arbitration panel. And of course, that has an effect on financing because the financers are, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's hard to price something like that. And so I think managing price reviews carefully and having a good system in place, potentially with a view towards ultimately having to defend what you did in a dispute is going to be important. For future contracts, I mean, I think what all of this leads to is number one, you want to consider tighter price review clauses eliminating maybe some of those types of vaguer or invitation to more creativity type factors that create so much uncertainty as to the outcome of a potential review. Another option which you see in some existing contracts that have price review clauses, and I think you'll get more of, is you might have a cap and a floor in terms of percentage or dollars by which the price can change or a range, however you want to phrase it, so that you can sort of attach some certainty on the upside and the downside. And then finally, you can kind of look at the practice of what some of the, a lot of the SPAs in the Atlantic Basin do, which is not have the traditional price review clauses and instead have a regime where you have cancellation and suspension fees to deal with potential price volatility issues, although, of course, other issues as well. And of course, what's potentially attractive about that kind of regime is that you can quantify your risk up front if gas prices get out of whack one way or the other during the entirety of an SPA's term. So those are some of the things I think in terms of current and future contracts that are worth looking at. Yeah. And Peter, you noted earlier that the contracts that have been signed this year that are announced are largely from U.S. LNG suppliers and the market practice on for U.S. LNG projects is not to have price review clauses and not to open up the prices in the future, but rather many of them do have cancellation regimes, which are really protective for the buyer. And so good for the LNG to power projects. If the fuel supply pricing gets out of whack, they can uh, at least cap their exposure. Yeah, that does sound like an advantage, should we say, for uh, specifically an LNG to power project. Is there any feeling that these contracts are becoming sort of more exposed to sort of risk than they have been? Or is it sort of too early to conclude that? Or, you know, does it sort of feel as if there is, you know, kind of more work to be done than maybe there was a few years ago? I think there's probably more risks and it's of different types, depending on obviously the specifics of the particular SPA. I think in the Asian SPAs with price review 
clauses, you've got an increased risk both of parties going into the price review process. And then if the particular contract allows it, and if the parties are unable to agree on a revised price during that process, then you've got an increased risk of arbitrations. And that's because it's an opportunity for the sellers you know, now, just like it was an opportunity for buyers a couple of years ago, given the change in price that we've seen on the market. And so, again, all of that has to be taken into account in financing. I also think the combination, just more generally, even aside from particular clauses in an SPA, the combination of supply chain issues that we've seen in the last couple of years, obviously not just in this industry, but across the industry, the combination of that with the price volatility that we've been talking about, and in particular, the high prices now of LNG cargos, I think that probably means you're going to see, and I think we're starting to see more potential delays or failures to deliver or failures to take under these LNG SPAs. And so that raises the prospect of additional force majeure claims, additional claims similar to that. And I think in this environment, it's particularly harder to resolve those commercially, just given the stakes that we're talking about, you know, how much a cargo is worth now, and given scheduling issues associated with some of the supply chain issues. So you get more complicated or higher stakes at issue with kind of the fusion of the supply chain issues and the price volatility. And I think at a minimum, that raises the stakes enough that makes disputes something that are more likely and certainly makes it trickier and higher stakes for a particularly delayed or not taken or not delivered cargo to be resolved commercially. Sure. Now, that sounds to me as a non-lawyer quite logical. I guess, you know, in terms of therefore, when you are talking to your clients, are there sort of smart solutions or particular strategies that you're able to recommend to try to mitigate this risk and to try to ensure that things can be, I guess, smoothed out or, you know, we don't have worst case scenarios where contractual arrangements, which, you know, are ultimately aimed at moving molecules of gas to places and then, you know, in an LNG to power project, creating electrons of much needed electricity, you know, that these don't get mired in in litigation and actually work as they should. Yeah, I think there's probably, and David will probably have thoughts on this as well on the commercial side. I mean, I think there's a few things to think about. Caveat all of it with you're limited by the contract that you already have, you know, for the term that you're talking about, right? So you're playing in that world. So with that in mind, I mean, a couple of the things that I think it's important to think about are, number one, to have a process in place so that you're reacting sort of consistently and in a timely fashion and in a way that can be defended when you face these sorts of issues. You want to have the evidence that you provided the notice that you were supposed to provide, that you provided the information that you were supposed to provide about an event that happens at For example, if you're a seller at an LNG facility that takes it offline, you want to be able to defend sort of the timing and the substance of what you did. And that involves both the kind of legal element of kind of knowing the contracts, knowing the contractual process, and having a system of communications and notices in place that you're comfortable with for when these things arise. And it also involves just on a practical level being ready to being ready and having the people and the material to get the information that you need so that you can follow that process. So I think that's an important piece of it. I think 
understanding, what, again, whether you're a buyer or a seller, understanding kind of your portfolio of contracts is important as well, because they're going to be different. And the consequences of something happening under one are going to be different economically than the consequences of something happening under a second contract. And so if you're in a position where you sort of have to pick your poison, choose a failure to deliver here or a failure to take there, you want to be able to do so in a commercially reasonable manner so that you can limit the consequences of what's happening and the risks associated with that. Those are a couple of the things I think that clients can keep in mind. Thanks, Weird. David, do you want to come in on that one? Yeah, I think there are a number of other provisions of contracts that I was thinking about is Wade was talking that the current environment has highlighted and we need to be mindful of when we're drafting these contracts now and when our clients are operating under the contracts. And you know, things that seemed, you know, maybe less important a year ago have become very important because of the value. And so things like the flexibility on quantities across a contract year or even with respect to individual cargoes you know, that flexibility has become incredibly valuable. You know, cancellation rights are very important where pricing dynamics were in a different place two years ago and understanding how those can be exercised and, and the impacts of exercising those is really important. And so it's not just making sure your pricing mechanics and your price review mechanics, if you have them, work. There's a whole lot of other provisions of, of these contracts that, you know, you need to make sure work well for you across your portfolio of contracts to provide you the certainty or the flexibility that you need, depending on the context. Excellent. That largely concludes what I had to ask you. Have you got any final thoughts in terms of where we stand now and how we move forward to bring to market you know, successful US and other global liquefaction projects and uh, you know, on the import side, you know, much needed LNG to power facilities? Yeah, I mean, for me, just a couple of final quick thoughts. Number one, and I think I fully agree with what David just said about sort of the importance of certain provisions of the contracts in this environment. And so I think, number one, just knowing the contracts, knowing the rights and obligations, as simple as it sounds under the SPAs, knowing the tools that you have existing at your disposal is really important in this type of environment. But then sort of going forward in terms of bringing these things to successful conclusion, I think accounting for the difficulty in quantifying for the prospect of a price change or the opposite of not allowing for the prospect of a price change when you're going to have a big price change in the market is kind of the toughest thing that folks face. And so thinking about either alternatives to the price review route, like the cancellation and suspension fees regime that we see on the U.S. projects, or thinking about how to get better at drafting those price review clauses so that there's less uncertainty and so that it's easier to price the potential for volatility, I think are pretty important factors. Excellent. Thank you, Wade. And David, uh, any last thoughts from you? Yes, for sure. And I'm going to take it just up to kind of a higher level, 30,000 foot view, if you will. The attack on Ukraine has made it abundantly clear that LNG has a huge role to play in security for Europe. And you know, those of us who've been in the industry have thought that to be the case for a long time. And there's been significant resistance in Europe to developing the energy infrastructure necessary to ensure that security of supply. We are going to see, we are seeing a deployment of significant capital, both private capital and government capital to build that infrastructure in Europe. At the same time, we need to recognize that 
In addition to playing a role in security for Europe, LNG has a huge role to play in the energy transition. And displacing coal, in particularly in Asia, coal-fired power plants, displacing those is a critical step to net zero. And so in addition to the supply security issues, the need to reduce carbon emissions means that we absolutely have to develop these LNG to power projects and increase the amount of natural gas supply in the energy mix around the world. Well, I don't think that anyone is going to disagree with that. I would hope uh, that seems like a very nice and pertinent note to, to end the conversation on. So I'd like to thank you both, Wade and David, for your time and for your insight on this podcast. And to the audience, I hope you enjoyed it. And please, we will be discussing these issues and others in more depth in Houston at the start of December. So you know, please, if you can get there, join us for that event. Thank you very much.